by our legal system, it is a living thing, molded and shaped by time, but growing and adapting itself to the conscience of each successive age. Hello everyone and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast, a CastBox original show. I'm Matthew Howes-Barbie and I'm joined by my co-host, Austin Knight. Hey Matt, hey everyone. If you haven't already, download the free CastBox app for iOS or Android and subscribe to the show there. That way you'll never miss out on any of our new episodes or bonus content coming from us. Today, we're going to be speaking with Amy Wan, the founder and CEO of SageWise. We've talked a lot in the past about the way that the legal space is evolving with the advent of blockchain technology, and we've even touched on it in our last episode with Andrew Keyes from Consensus. Mm, yeah. With that in mind, we decided it was probably time to speak with someone that has a ton of experience in the legal sector. Yeah, absolutely. That chat we had with Andrew was great. And he definitely touched on some of the legal stuff. And I think that um, Amy, who is a former partner at a boutique law firm, is probably going to be really well placed to start digging in uh, in more detail. Alongside being a partner at a boutique law firm, she previously authored a bunch of legal publications on capital markets. One of these included a legal practice guide on ICOs. So she's perfect for us to chat with. Uh, on top of this, she's actually even worked for the US government, so has an inside view in the wonderful and absolutely not frustrating world of regulation. It's exciting. We're going to dig into how regulation is going to play a big part in the future of the crypto space, mm. the unique legal challenges that new blockchain companies are facing, and whether we're going to remove the need for lawyers altogether. This is some big stuff. Mm. Sounds controversial, Austin. <laughs> 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 and this is probably a good time for us to mention that anything in this episode should not be taken as legal advice. Please make sure you always consult an independent legal professional first. You really should. You also should not give us a reason to be sued. Yeah, I would say that would be the primary thing that you should not give a reason for. Um, that would be absolutely ideal for us. All right, let's jump in and welcome our guest. Amy, welcome to the Decrypting Crypto podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So Amy, we're so excited to have you on the show and there's a bunch of questions that we wanna dig into. But first, I wanna help our listeners to get a sense for who you are and how you got involved in the crypto space. So tell us your story. Yeah, sure. So I first got involved, I wanna say back in 20. 12, 2013, I was working for the federal government at the time, the U.S. government. And if you know anything about working for the U.S. government, sometimes it can be incredibly frustrating and boring because you are basically pushing around paper and sometimes it feels like nothing gets done. So while that was happening during the day, I would go home at night and I started teaching myself how to code via a Coursera course because, you know, I was bored and I wanted to my frustrations elsewhere. And I remember <laughs> one of the assignments for these courses was, hey, create a website and ask people for Bitcoin. And I was like, why would I do that? What is Bitcoin? And why am I doing online panhandling? <laughs> but that was probably my, the, my first exposure to Bitcoin. Later on, when I left the government and moved back to Los Angeles, 
I was trying to find a new career track for myself. And that's when I started really getting into the whole Bitcoin blockchain thing. But really now, so, so this time around, it's kind of like my third wave, but you know, since then I became a securities attorney, was, was practicing securities law. And, you know, basically I had started in early 2017, a startup that, uh, combined law and technology. It's a legal technology company. And at that time I was just getting all these calls from people who were like, Hey, I want to create my own version of the Dow. I want to do an ICO. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? So I started looking into it. I was closely monitoring the industry and I would say spring or summer of 2017 is when these calls like really reached their, their peak, their max. Right. And around that time, I saw something really interesting, which is, you know, it seemed like every other day there would be a news report of, oh, this ICO just got hacked for several millions of dollars, two or three or seven million dollars, right? And the founders would lose money. They would shrug their shoulders and say, oh, I I guess this is, you know, how things work. And the crypto investors would sit there and be like, oops, I guess that's how this industry works. And I was sitting there scratching my head being like, this is crazy. Like (laughs) in the real world, (laughs) when you lose like $3 million, you get slapped with a lawsuit. And so after that, we basically pivoted our company to try and address and solve this huge problem. And, And part of the reason why this was happening is because smart contracts are often not very smart. And so we basically now create a safety net for smart contracts. Could you describe to us for our listeners really quick, like what a smart contract is just so that they know what you're dealing with? Sure. So a smart contract, it's a concept that started in 1994 by a guy named Nick Sabo. But basically all it is, is I prefer to call it a programmable contract, right? It's a set of functions that basically is supposed to be self-executing. So you don't have to do anything to trigger an action. It just does it by itself. So it's it's basically a bunch of if A, then B functions. So if, I don't know, the price of Bitcoin drops below X dollars, then sell half my portfolio. And so when the first trigger happens, the second one will as well. But it's just imagine, you know, several dozens or hundreds of lines of code that kind of work with each other to come up with a much larger scheme. You can use this for polling, voting, you know, for for financial services. The, The idea is that instead of having these paper contracts where you have to go actually enforce it, that they can be self-enforcing. And so given your background and all of the diverse things that you've done and what, what's brought you here today, I have to say that the work that we know that you're doing with SageWise, it, it feels like a perfect combination, like you've arrived at the right place. So if you could, just for ourselves and for our listeners, uh, give us an overview of SageWise and where you've arrived today. Yeah, sure. So, you know, first to lay out the the problem, you know, a lot of the ICOs that were getting hacked back in 2017, you know, this is not the only reason, but one of the large reasons is because they were all powered by smart contracts, 
But smart contracts are not perfect, right? They may have coding errors. They may have security vulnerabilities. And then the truth is, you know, code is static, but human situations are not. And so there will be situations where people need to be able to amend, modify, or terminate their smart contract. In in the blockchain crypto space, we call that upgrading or evolving a smart contract. And then at the end of the day, you know, you know, nothing is perfect. And so there may be disputes, maybe something executes or maybe something didn't execute, but it was supposed to, you're going to have a genuine dispute over that. And, you know, to the extent that maybe you have some value tied up in the smart contract, because it can act like digital escrow, what happens, right? Right now, you're just seeing massive failures. There's an estimated over $1 billion in value lost in 2017 from smart contracts. We're trying to create the safety net that acts as a fail-safe. So, you know, if you have a coding error, if there is a genuine dispute, that you've got something in place to, to handle that. So the way it works is it's a whole toolkit of tools that allow you to basically monitor, resolve, upgrade, and then, you know, collections enforcement tools at the very end for all the things that might go wrong with your smart contract, including dispute resolution. Interesting. I, I think smart contracts is something that myself and Austin, we've talked a bit on the podcast before, and it seems to be that nearly everyone we speak to in the crypto blockchain space has something to talk about within the, the smart contracts arena. But before we dig a bit deeper into smart contracts, and in particular their implications in the legal space, I, I wanted to dig into some of your experience and expertise in the legal space as a, as a whole and around regulation and get your opinion here to share with our listeners around how you think the legal space has evolved um, over the past few years and with the advent of the popularization of blockchain technology and what are some of the challenges that new companies coming in you, you talked a lot about companies that are launching ICOs and whole new companies just entering the space and it seems there's an element of naivety with some of them or just negligence in some cases. What, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges that they're facing? Yeah, sure. So there's there's a lot to unpack here, right? So first for the blockchain and crypto companies that are dealing with laws and regulations in this very novel field, the truth is that the legal industry is a very slow one when it comes to evolving. Now, in the early days of, you know, all this craziness, people were running around with their heads cut off saying, oh, it's the Wild West. There are no rules and regulations. The truth is that there are rules and regulations that they've been there for, if not years, decades or even hundreds of years. It's just a matter of now clarifying how that is interpreted and applies to the blockchain crypto industry. So securities law, for example, that's the 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 first big hurdle or probably the second big hurdle that these companies have faced, right? That and money transmitter licenses. Those laws have been on the books for decades. Now it's just a matter of figuring out, okay, how do these laws now apply to this novel new industry? And that's not an overnight thing. It is going to take a while. I think the one very unique thing about how I have seen this go down in the blockchain crypto space 
is that you have a lot of very smart technologists who are literally sitting there reading, you know, securities regulations and trying to find loopholes. I've, I've never seen so much creativity in my entire life, right? <laughs> but that's really not how it works, right? And so I think, I think, you know, both the regulators, the legal community and the companies have to kind of sit down and all exchange notes and exchange knowledge on, you know, what is the intent behind these regulations? Now, this is not my first rodeo when it comes to, you know, startups dealing with novel industries or technologies. Before this, I was in the crowdfunding space, which is still capital markets. It's fundraising, things of that sort, right? And the one thing I will say is that novel issues and, and, and novel things when it comes to the law is always very, very expensive. That's the one thing that I think always reigns true. And so for all those crypto companies, I would say, you know, make sure you have a great attorney who understands your business, who understands the blockchain industry and can be, you know, very nimble and swift and creative and won't bill you too much, hopefully. <laughs> I I can imagine that the latter part of that is quite rare. <laughs> <laughs> there are good attorneys out there. <laughs> Speaking of attorneys billing you and being such a huge part of this process, we've heard a lot of people talk about how smart contracts will actually cut out the need for lawyers to be part of the legal process. Do you think that that is actually true? Is this like partially something that could happen or totally not true? What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely not. <laughs> and I don't say that as a lawyer, because I'm probably more of a, when it comes to a, a self-loathing attorney, right? I, I personally hate so much about the legal industry and how inefficient it is. But, um, you know, I have seen some articles go viral saying, hey, smart contracts are going to lead us to a lawyerless world. And that's just not true because that misunderstands what lawyering is. The example I always give is, you know, I've been a lawyer and I could sit there and for a contract that may, might take one hour, I can spend 10 hours on it and try to, you know, envision everything that might go wrong with the contract and plan for that. But the truth is there's an infinite number of possibilities and you never know what is going to happen, what how situations might change. So, you know, technology is technology and blockchain and all that stuff, it's its incredible and it can help with so much. But there is a layer in all of this that is very human, right? Humans are not static. Human situations are not static. And so that's where lawyers come into play is in those situations where, you know, you, you never would have guessed that would have happened. Who would have guessed, you know, that there would be an erupting vocation active volcano on Hawaii right now. Like that's not that, you know, that's, that's not something people necessarily think about when they're booking a vacation to Hawaii. Right. And yet how does that affect global commerce and trade and all the, the ships that are supposed to come into port in Hawaii? You know, there's a whole ripple effect in, in unexpected situations. And, and that's, that's really, I think where lawyers come into play. Yeah. This is sort of a beautiful pattern that I, myself have been anecdotally experiencing uh, a lot with emerging tech is that first people get scared 
by the tech because they think it could do evil things or put them out of a job. And then what we ultimately discover is that it doesn't put anybody out of a job, rather it augments their abilities. And that's how I feel about smart contracts as well, is that you're, as you've laid out here so eloquently, you're always going to need the human touch and intuition of an attorney, the ability to adapt to circumstances, but smart contracts can augment the work that they do uh, that is predictable and, and help it to always create the outcome that they are wanting. Yeah. And, you know, what I see is the possibility of creation of new jobs. So, for example, there's going to be an entirely new market or industry of growth for attorneys who can also read and write code, right? Because you're probably going to want some sort of intermediary. There's going to be docu-signs for smart contracts and contract management systems for smart contracts and stuff like what we're, we're building, which is dispute resolution infrastructures for smart contracts. A, a nice little analogy I'd like to give, because I have a little bit of background in the AI space, is you know, there was a period of time where everyone was saying, oh my God, AI is going to take, AI and automation is going to take all our jobs. And what I would tell, you know, kids in college or, you know, new graduates is it's not going to, but make sure that you concentrate in those areas that a robot is not going to excel in, right? Mm -hmm. So anything that requires emotion or the human touch. So, you know, if you're a physician, don't be a radiologist who, you know, visually sits there looking at the x-ray for, you know, tumors or, or bone things or whatever. Be the internist who is the one who has to go to a family and tell them that their loved one is about to pass away because, like, I just, I don't see a robot doing that very well. Mm-hmm. Doesn't sound like the most appealing job to me right now, though, I must say. <laughs> 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 I think it's interesting, though, what you actually touched on as part of that. It's almost like a passing comment. In in our last episode, actually, with Andrew Keyes from Consensus, we touched on this very slightly. And that was around the idea that lawyers and legal professionals may need to, or at least there will be high demand for those that can code and actually write smart contracts. Do you, do you see this being the the future of the legal space, this pseudo solidity coder slash uh, legal professional? I think the number of lawyers who actually sit there and code smart contracts is going to be, you know, not high, but what I do see is kind of like scrum masters or product managers, right? Those intermediaries who they understand a little bit of law, maybe they have a little bit of technical experience, and so they can kind of act as a facilitator or an intermediary between the developer and the normal lawyer and say, well, here, these are the lawyer's concerns. This is what the developer has written. What are we missing? How do we bring this all together? So building off of that, sort of outside of the contributions that attorneys will make as the legal world evolves, are there any problems that you see specifically related to smart contracts that need to be overcome within that technology in the next few years? 
where do I begin? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's everything's very nascent right now. Um, we are just at the beginning and there is virtually no infrastructure for this, right? So there's a lot that needs to be done over the next couple of years for all this stuff to become more mainstream on the legal side. You know, we need more regulatory and legal clarity. We need laws that recognize smart contracts and blockchain and things of that sort. On the legal side, there are genuine questions, right, over, you know, how do you make a smart contract binding? How do you make it enforceable to the extent it's pseudonymous? Which jurisdiction controls you know, and these are all very fundamental base questions that haven't really been answered to date. And, you know, there's there's definitely really nerdy communities out there trying to figure this out, trying to come up with the answer. But, you know, there's still a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built. I think that element there of jurisdiction is something that's quite interesting. And I think this is something that ultimately uh, with the, the widespread decentralization that blockchain is bringing and the kind of borderlessness, if for, for lack of a better term, of a lot of the companies and institutions and autonomous organizations that are operating within there. The idea of like who actually governs and oversees the contracts that are being made and the element of liability around certain legal cases that are going to spring up around smart contracts uh it's it's going to become incredibly tricky right within the legal space and do you see any like big issues arising around that in the more immediate future and is this something that people should even be worried about right now or are we, are we at too early in a stage um you know these are questions that we talk about internally in in sagewise every single day i think the most immediate manifestation of this problem is probably going to be you know to the extent that someone gets hauled into court right or someone gets sued or um or maybe if if it's a regulator that hauls a company into court and the court comes out with an order the question is going to be well how do you enforce that order if, for example, value is tied up in a smart contract, you know, to the extent that there are no backdoors or administrator modes to that smart contract, you, you have a, a very big problem. The court is basically telling you, hack the smart contract. And, in, you know, if, if it's a good smart contract, it should not be hackable, right? Um, <laughs> that would be ideal. <laughs> so... So how do you enforce that, right? And even if you do have some sort of backdoor, who has the authority to enforce it, right? I mean, blockchain is such a global industry that, you know, how are you going to enforce something when the people are on the other side of the world? We already have that problem today with traditional contracts. And that's the thing that smart contracts are supposed to be able to solve. But who has authority here? Because, you know, Bitcoin and the blockchain industry, there, there's a very nativist ethos of screw the government. We don't want to listen to you. We're going to do things ourselves. Yeah. And I, I that's that's something that I'm kind of finding is one of the 
craziest pieces around <laughs> this space. This is one of the most beautiful things, but also probably could be one of the most destructive things in the long term. And I think this is perfectly illustrated of, uh, several years ago now when the DAO was hacked, right? And mm -hmm. it, it felt like to touch on what you were talking about near the start, we had this major breach, loads of people losing money. And if that was a private company or a public company, because it doesn't really matter, it, there would be a huge legal backlash and it wouldn't be the company deciding what the next steps are. But in that situation, the Ethereum community decided that they would hard fork, rescue the funds. And it was kind of like, hey, we decide what happens in this space and we're not really guided by any kind of legal infrastructure. I just wonder how, yeah. how long that can last and... It, is that even the right thing for consumers? It kind of feels like it goes against the whole idea of regulation and protecting consumers to a certain extent as well. Well, you know, the thing I love about the DAO hack is I think it's a perfect illustration of, you know, <laughs> when shit hits the fan, what really does, does human nature look like, right? And so <laughs> when the DAO got hacked, they had this whole ethos of code is law, which, you know, people say that to me all the time and it makes me laugh. And I tell them <laughs> code is not law. Law is law. Code and English are merely mediums of expressing intent. Right. Mm. Um, and so when the Dow got hacked and they lost, what, 50, 60 million dollars, you had this contingent that was like code is law. Code is still law. You know, they're very strong in their fundamental philosophy of decentralization, immutability, all of that kind of stuff. And then you had what I call the human beings, right? Who they say one thing and then the moment they lose money, they they cry and they scream. And so you had a part of the community that was like, that's not fair. I lost money. Let's go to the police. And there were genuine discussions at that time of, well, which police do we call? <laughs> <laughs> the code police, maybe? <laughs> I know, right? I mean, you, you go to your local police station, they're not going to have any idea what you're talking about, right? And so, so you know, I think a lot of these issues can and, and must get ironed out over time. I mean, look, just a year ago, this entire industry was like, everything's pseudonymous, all of that kind of stuff. And today, you know, at least in the U.S., people are very gung-ho over KYC AML, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it used to be like, oh, I'm so protective of my pseudonymous identity. So things are changing and, and they will have to change in order for this to go mainstream. Because at the end of the day, look, like if you're a regular user and you send something to the wrong wallet and you can't get it back, you know, People aren't going to use that when they have a credit card where if they swipe it or, you know, if there's a transaction that they'd like to dispute, they can dispute it, right? I talk a lot about transactional confidence and certainty. And that's, you know, when they figured that out, that's what made the e-commerce revolution and the first wave of the internet revolution take off. That's missing today in the blockchain industry. And when that problem gets solved, that's when I think we can st start taking blockchain much more seriously. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think one of the things that illustrates this a lot to me within the space, myself and Austin, we've talked about this actually on the show before, where it's this idea of the, the shifting dynamic of ownership that's happening within 
uh, blockchain, whether that's through data, funding, like uh, your own security, etc. And that's being championed as one of the best things that's happening. But within that, what's happening with the storing of tokens and cryptocurrency is the, the consumer is becoming the bank. And for a lot of people that are advocating the, the blockchain movement, primarily a lot of people that probably got in earlier on into the space, they're, they're championing this fact. But for a lot of people, that scares the hell out of them and they don't actually wanna be the bank. And when you look at like how people store their cryptocurrency, tons of people leave their crypto in centralized exchanges because they are too worried that they'll lose the piece of paper or their hardware wallet or they'll misplace their private key somewhere. Mm -hmm. It kind of, it's almost ironic within all of this, the fact that actually we're at such a level like what you say where there's no there's no customer service for the blockchain right and no building that trust is tough with people if if their first experience is quite negative and and you know you brought up customer service here's another thing that i've been thinking a lot about lately which is you're seeing this sudden explosion of all these you know purported decentralized marketplaces right and i'm like hmm well, this is interesting because one of the things that makes me buy on Amazon, even though I hate ethically, I hate giving Jeff Bezos all my money, but <laughs> you like, know, like everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that makes Amazon work so well is if something doesn't arrive, or if something comes defective, or I want to make a return, it's very easy. Amazon provides great customer support, and they take care of that. When I go to Upwork, and I want someone to do something for me, and we have a genuine dispute, Upwork has a whole dispute resolution infrastructure, right? Now, decentralized marketplaces, no one's been able to answer the question for me of, well, where's that customer support? It's hard to have it come from the community because then you're going to have a thousand different answers, right? And Mm -hmm. to the extent you are actually providing customer support, well, then I would say you're not really truly decentralized, that you're probably a centralized organization. So the entire thing confuses me. No one's been able to answer this question for me. Yeah, and I, it it is incredibly difficult. It feels like we have a piece of the puzzle, and I think smart contracts actually are a perfect example of that in in themselves. Right? There's there's only smart contracts are being heralded as like the greatest thing that's <laughs> that's happened so far to date in almost like technological history. But it feels like they certainly provide a ton of value and are gonna evolve. But there still requires a whole lot of things to go into this. It's okay building logic for things, but even, like for example, people talk a lot about how you can use smart contracts to sell your house and it mm-hmm. removes the need for a trusted third party. But right now, like property and houses, they're not digitized, they're not tokenized at this stage. So we still need some kind of verification. There needs to be like inputs, kind of like the classic put crap in, get crap out, right? And it's, I still struggle with some of that as well of like, we still are nowhere near the end destination for a lot of these technologies. And like what you're talking about within things like decentralized marketplaces, almost feels like right now we're jumping ahead to painting a picture to consumers that they are there, but it just kind of feels like, all right, 
you've basically got a marketplace where nobody's liable for anything that can ever go wrong for you. Yeah. So, you know, I come from the real estate finance industry and people have told me, oh, you know, it's going to be great. Real estate's all going to be liquid and we're going to have instant escrow on real estate. And I'm like, I don't think you understand real estate. I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but look, I just I just closed a month ago on a new house, right? And it was a 30 30 day escrow, but in those 30 days there was an appraisal and a home inspection and loan contingencies and repairs had to be made. There was there was a lot of stuff that had to happen. I was like, I don't I don't know how you could close on a house and instantly because, you know, I, I get the title aspect, but everything else, you know, it, it doesn't quite make sense to me. Certainly where we are right now, at least there's so many yeah. things like all of those parts in the process that you described for us truly to like the appraisal piece, the loan check, like all of these things, it feels like need to be running on the same layer uh, that is facilitating the the transaction on the the blockchain as well. And right now, it, yeah. it doesn't feel like we're anywhere near that stage yet. I hope yeah. that we get there though. So what I'll say about that is like, you know, I think you're right. I feel like a lot of people say, oh, smart contracts, they're the panacea for everything. And <laughs> I like to say, well, you know, I think you really need to understand smart contracts and their limitations. I think you really need to understand the industries that you're dealing with, right? Because right now I'm seeing a lot of people running around saying, oh, let's apply blockchain and smart contracts to this, that, and the other. And I'm, I'm like, well, that doesn't actually make sense. That actually brings more inefficiency and cost into the process. Why would you do that? You could use a regular database. You you don't need a smart contract, for example, right? So I look... I'm very optimistic and bullish on smart contracts, on blockchain in general. It's just, I think a lot of people are are very overexcited right now, and they're they think it solves everything. And when when really, you know, there are some cases where it makes a lot of sense, and there's other cases where it's like, why are you doing this? Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. Why are you doing this? That's that's happening right now. I, and I think it's fair to say, like with with everyone that we speak on the show, by and large, everyone's very optimistic about the future that we're at right now. I think the downside to a lot of this is people are very excited. Yeah. And they're, they're pushing this industry forward. Things are remaining positive. But I feel like there are certainly a lot of not even necessarily minute details, quite large details that are being <laughs> glossed over in, in a bid to keep the momentum of excitement going. And like what we're, what we're seeing, especially with a lot of the hacks that seem to be happening on like a daily basis to every major exchange now in the tens of millions at best, we're seeing that there is more and more and more problems that need to be addressed in this space before we get to mass adoption. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. 
Amy, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great talking with you. Before we finish up, why don't you let our listeners know where they can hear more from you and the projects that you're working on? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I'm on all the major social media channels. The best place to get company updates and interact with us is on our Telegram channel, which is at SageWise, S-A-G-E-W-I-S-E. Otherwise, I seem to have a very... uh, large LinkedIn following because I make a lot of commentary on the industry there. So, you know, they can follow me on LinkedIn as well. Great. Well, Amy, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks for taking the time. Of course. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and want to show your appreciation to myself and Matt, make sure you subscribe and leave us a review on the CastBox app or your favorite podcasting platform. We'd really appreciate that. And if you haven't already, you can download the free CastBox app where you'll find us as one of the CastBox original shows. You can also visit thecoinoffering.com to learn more about cryptocurrencies, get caught up on some news, see how your currency is performing, and you can follow us on Twitter at the coin offering. Finally, you can ask us any questions you have by emailing us at podcast at the coin The Decrypting Crypto Podcast is a Castbox original show, and its contents should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment cryptocurrency or otherwise.